A couple weeks ago, we started a series in First Peter, and I want to go back to that today and uh, kind of pick up where we left off. We were um, kind of starting through this book and looking at uh, what Peter had to say to those who were chosen by God, but also exiles in this world. They were strangers in this world, Peter said, and he talks to them in the first part of chapter one about this incredible salvation that God has provided us as believers in Christ. He talks about all that God did to choose us and to make us his own, how that God had pre-planned uh, our, our, our adoption into his family and all of these incredible things about the salvation of God. And, uh, and today we're going to pick up uh, looking at what that means and the implications of this great salvation for our life. I read something this week that, or last week really, that stuck with me and, and it's really kind of challenged me. And uh, an author said this, he says, the greatest battle that you will ever face the, the greatest war that you will ever wage will not be against COVID. It will not be against disease. It will not even be against the disasters that strike our world or even death. He said the greatest battle that a believer will ever fight is the battle to keep the faith to the end. Think about that. The greatest battle that you and I will ever face is the battle to keep the faith until the end. Not to beat death, but to beat doubt. To keep the faith. Because when we do that, all other battles seem insignificant. Think about this. If, if, if our greatest enemy is death, right? It's the thing that we try to avoid, the thing that we, we try to postpone, the thing that we try to push back the farthest. And, and our greatest enemy is death. But if our goal in life is to beat death, then each of us will lose that final battle. And we will leave this world a loser. But if your greatest battle is to stay faithful until the end, then every one of us as believers in Christ can go out on top. We can go out a winner. When you think about this, nobody ever remembers the second one. Nobody ever remembers who lost the Super Bowl. <laughs> you remember the winners. You remember the ones who go out on top. And, and, and that's one of the, the things about uh, professional sports or any kind of a sport, even high school sports, is that you can have an incredible season and you lose the last game, the championship game, and you feel like you've been defeated. If, if our goal in life is to... To, to win over disease or to win over cancer or to win over disasters or to win over even death, then we will eventually lose all those battles. But we don't have to lose the battle to keep the faith. If that's our main goal, then we can go out as winners. The Apostle Paul, he didn't fear death. He said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. But, but Paul is the one who said, I have fought the fight. How? By keeping the faith. And that's what we are called to do. Staying alive was not Paul's main goal, but keeping the faith was. And, and the same was true with Jesus. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying, Father, if there's a way for us to do this a different way, hey, I'm all in. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Why? He was focused on keeping the faith. He was focused on obeying the Father. In our study here of 1 Peter, what Peter is going to do is to shift our attention away from this incredible salvation He's just introduced that and told us all about this incredible salvation. Now he's going to focus our attention upon our response to that gift of salvation. What does that mean? So, so Christ has done all of this to bring us into his family. So what? What does it mean? 
What does it mean that we've been brought into the family of God? And, and what are we to do as a, as a response to God's great gift of grace? What's our response and what's our responsibility? Because God's great gift of grace demands, but it also provides the means to live a grace-empowered life. So what we want to look at as Peter kind of shifts his focus away from discussing this incredible salvation is to look at what our response ought to be. And today, I'm just going to take one verse out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I, my, my goal was last week, I, I was going to finish the chapter, the first chapter. And this week, God just kind of stopped me in my tracks and said, Rob, we've got to answer the question, How? Chapter 1, verse 13 tells us what our responsibility is, what, what God would, would expect from us because of the salvation that he's provided. But if all we do is say, hey, this is what God expects, but we don't talk about how we accomplish that, then I think we've missed something. So I'm going to slow it down just a little bit today. We're going to look at, at chapter 1, verse 13, and then I want to supplement that with other scripture that I think would help us to understand how to do what he's asking us to do in 1 first, uh, first Peter 1.13. So let's read 1 Peter 1.13 together. And, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. He says, therefore, now, therefore ties it back. We, we, we talk about this all the time. You always, when you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it there for? What's he connecting? He's connecting the salvation, which he's previously introduced to us. And he's saying, now that you've received this salvation, now that you understand what God has done for you, there's something that we need to do in response, okay? So therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the focus of what he's going to say in, in, in this first verse. This, this verse we're going to look at today. He says, I want you to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Christ returns and he calls his bride to himself and he gathers all the world, all the believers believers and lost people together, but especially for us as believers, when he calls us into the presence of Christ and we step from this life into eternity, he says, I want you while you're living as sojourners on this earth, as strangers on this earth, I want your focus to be solely, to be squarely set upon this grace that's going to be poured out on you when you stand before Jesus. And when we focus our attention upon that kind of grace, it makes us grace-filled toward others. It, it, it takes and reminds us of what Jesus has done and not what we've done. Because grace is the gift, it's not the works. It's, it's not what I bring to the table, but what Jesus brings to the table. And, and, and so Peter is saying here, I want you to live your life in such a way that, you are, that your hope is, is set fully on that grace. That's something that we can't hardly get our minds around, how that the grace of God is so large, so huge, so powerful that it can cover every sin, that it can make us righteous in the sight of the Lord. So there's some things that he says here. He says, I want you to set your hope. I want you to anchor your hope. I get the picture in my mind, I'm, I'm visual, so I get this picture in my mind of, of a fighter pilot locking his radar on the target. You ever seen these fighter movies where these guys are in the plane and they got the little screen and they're, and they're trying to get it and, and they finally lock, put a lock on that, that thing in front of them that they want to hit. And it locks the radar on that and no matter where they go, that radar shifts and adjusts 
focused upon that target. And, and that's the image I get in my mind when he says, set your hope, anchor your hope to this grace that is going to be revealed. Anchor everything in life, the focus of your life, upon not just the, 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 the troubles that will come because they're going to come. Peter, again, is preparing his people for the persecution that's about to come. He says there's going to be a lot of distractions, lots of bombs going off around you. But you focus your hope not on sustaining your life, not on avoiding conflict, not on avoiding persecution, but you anchor your hope, you set your hope fully on the grace that God's going to give to you when this life is over with. Now, if I can do that, then I can live with hope. If I can remember the grace that is coming, that even if this world takes my life, even if this world persecutes me, even if this world rejects me, that I still have the grace of God that's going to be applied to my life at the end of this. He says, I want you to set your hope. I want you to to, to lock it in like a fighter pilot. Your hope fixed on grace that's going to be brought to you, this future grace, not just the grace in the past. So, so here he is in the first part of this book talking about grace in the past, the, the, the cross and, and, and the salvation. And now he's talking about the grace in the future. And here we are living in between those two outpourings of God's grace. And then he tells us how we fix our hope on the grace. There's two things at the beginning of this verse that tell us the hows. It answers the question, how do I fix my hope fully on the grace? One is to prepare our minds for action, and the other is to be sober-minded. That's the, that's the how of the hope. How can I fix my hope upon Jesus, fully upon the grace that Jesus gives me? I've, I've, got, to, I, I've got to prepare my mind for action, and I've got to be sober-minded. Now, this word prepare, to prepare your mind for action, is literally the word to gird up. It was a picture of a Roman soldier in that, in that day and time that would have a, a longer uh, flowing garb that he would wear. And when he prepared for battle, he'd pick up the corner of that, that deal and he would tuck it inside his belt. And he'd pick up this side and he'd tuck it inside the belt. And he'd pick up the back and he's pulling everything up and girding and he's tightening the belt. And he's girding himself up. Preparing himself for action, for battle. He didn't want to trip over this long flowing thing. He, he, didn't, want to, he didn't want to go into battle and, and somebody be able to grab it and to hold him down and tie him down. And so he's girding himself up. He's, he's, he's picking up all the flowing robes and he's tucking it inside his belt. And he's getting himself ready where he can move, where he can be agile, where he can accomplish his mission without anything holding him back. If we were going to put that in Vinton terms that folks in our community might understand, we might would say instead of gird up, saddle up. Saddle up. If you're going to ride and, and, and you're going to go, saddle up. Get ready. If we are going to, to put our hope fully upon Jesus Christ, then we've got to saddle up. We, we've got to do that. But in order to saddle up, you've got to cinch up, right? Those of you that are in the horse business, I, I'm not a horseman. Uh, found this saddle in my shop, but I'm not a horseman. Now, if you're going to ride, you don't just jump on, do you? What's going to happen if you just jump on a saddle and you don't gird it up? You don't tighten it up? You don't cinch it up? You ever seen somebody try to get on a horse when the saddle's not, not girded up? <laughs> Charles has seen it. You ever done that, Charles? Yeah? Okay. The saddle's going to spin on that horse, and you can go tumbling off. You, you take this thing, and you wrap it around, and you cinch it up, and you, you, you cinch it tight. Because why? This is anchored to the horse. That's going to get you where you're going. But if this is not anchored, you're not going to make it far. 
Okay? So he's saying to us, saddle up. But, but when you saddle up, there's a process. You want to you gird this thing up. You want to you tighten it up. And you want to make sure that where that horse goes, the saddle goes. Because if the, if the saddle's attached to the horse and you're attached to the saddle, you're going to get where you're going. And that's part of what Paul's trying to say here is that we've got to saddle it up. Now, now here's what a lot of people will do. They, they want to get the fancy hat. They want to get the cowboy boots. They want to look the part. But they never stop to think about what they need to do to prepare themselves to make the journey. It's not about the boots, it's not about the hat, it's not even about the, 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 the fanciness of the saddle. If that saddle's not attached, if it's not girded up, if it's not prepared properly, that rider's not going to make it. And so Paul, or Peter here, is trying to say to us, I want you to prepare your minds for action. Gird up your minds. Prepare yourself. Get, get ready for action. Just like a soldier is getting ready mentally and physically and in every way to enter into battle. I want you to prepare yourself for the battles that lie ahead. Now, I don't want the battles to distract you. I don't want the battles to to intimidate you. I want you to keep your hope focused, set upon the grace that's coming your way. But in that process to have that hope secure, you've got to prepare your mind. You've got to gird up your mind for action. When he talks about preparing our minds... He doesn't say, clean up your act. He doesn't say, dress the part. He doesn't say, pretend to love. He doesn't say, you know, act excited. He says, prepare your mind. He moves from the outward to the inward. What we're going to see today is that, that, that many times in, in, in our lives, and I've been guilty of this, instead of going at the root, we just look at the fruit. And what, what we're going to see in Paul's writings, because I want you to understand this. As we go through the book of Peter, Peter is drawing a lot upon Paul's writings. In fact, at the end of 1 Peter, Peter will make a comment where he'll say, hey, you know, I, I'm sharing with you things you probably already know. In fact, Paul's already written about most of this, but he writes it in a way it's kind of hard to understand. I'm going to boil it down for you. So we know Peter is drawing off of Paul's writings, and, and, and these two things are, are working in tandem with one another. And so when we look at this, we're, we're seeing that he's saying, I want you to prepare your mind, not just what you think, Why you think that? That's a little bit different. It's a lot deeper. We're, we're moving from the surface to, to the heart. We're, we're moving from, 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 from the surface to, to what's central, from, from our behavior to our being, who we are. We're, we're, we're moving from just a religious apparel, a religious look, to this relationship that transforms everything. And so he calls us to prepare our minds for action. Uh, let's look at a couple of verses that, that I think will help us to illustrate this and help us to make more sense out of it. In, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul writes about this preparation that needs to take place in us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. He talks about the battles that we enter into. And again, Peter using this battle motif, this soldier girding up his loins. And Paul reminds us in verse 3, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. He says, though we walk in the flesh, in this body, okay, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take thought, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let me, let me break that down for you. And let's just look at some of the things that he's saying here. He says, the, the, first of all, we're, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness and, and, and all the stuff of this world. And, and so what he's saying here is I want you to know that we're not going to fight this spiritual battle with, with a sword and with a club. We're not going to fight it with, with those kinds of, uh, of tools that you would see on a normal battlefield. But we will fight with this divine power that God's given us. And his divine power destroys the grip of sin. It destroys the strongholds on our lives. When we came to Christ, we were in the grip of sin. And by the grace of God, he has broken those chains and he has set us free. And then he calls us to live free lives. The problem is we've lived our whole life as slaves. So we've lived our whole life as slaves. We don't even know what the freed life looks like. And so here he's saying that this battle that we're in is going to destroy the strongholds. And look what else he destroys. In verse 5, we destroy the arguments, these hostile reasonings. And also every lofty opinion. Literally that word means barrier. Every barrier that's raised up against the knowledge of God. Every excuse, every obstacle, every argument. So when, when we begin to fight this divine power, with this divine power, it destroys the strongholds that have kept us attached to sin. It destroys the arguments, this, this human reasoning that we can come up with and say, well, here's a reason why I shouldn't follow God. Here's a reason why I can't trust God. Here's a reason why I can't set my hope fully on the grace of God. We destroy those things in the spiritual realm. We destroy every lofty opinion, every barrier that's raised against the knowledge of God. Do you know how you just destroy the, the, the knowledge of, of those things that are opposed to God? You destroy those obstacles by truth and by coming to know the truth of God's word. And then he says this, we take every thought captive, take it prisoner. We literally interrogate every thought, every argument, every opinion that stands uh, in opposition to God. We interrogate it. Why am I thinking that? Why do I keep going to that? Why is that my default response? We, we all have these default responses, which is a part of the old man that still needs to be put to death. You ever met those people when, when, when an event in life happens, it doesn't matter how good it is, they're going to find the one negative thing? That, that's their default, is to find the one fault, the one thing, the, 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 the bad thing. Or, or you, you meet somebody and, and, and they listen to a weather report and, and immediately their mind goes to the worst possible scenario. We're all going to be killed. We're all going to die. Tornadoes are going to wipe us out. And, and fear grips their life. That's the part of the old man. And he's saying, God has come to set us free from those old patterns, those old ways. And, and so, but, but in order for that to happen, we've got to renew our mind. We've got to change our mind. We've got to prepare our mind. And so here he's talking about how that's, that's done. It's done in the spiritual world. It's done as you and I <coughs> grow in our, in our walk with the Lord. And it destroys the strongholds that hold us captive. It destroys the arguments that we give and the excuses that we provide for not following Jesus with all of our heart. And, and it destroys these lofty opinions that, that people will come up with against the knowledge of God. And we do it by taking every thought captive every thought captive to obey christ 
So when we're in this, we ask this question, is that thought honoring to Christ? What if we started asking that before we spoke? What if when we're hurt, or we're wounded, or we're impatient, what if we ask the question, we captured the thought before it leaves our mouth, and we ask the question, is this honoring to Christ? It would revolutionize our lives. It would change how we, we speak to others. Is this honoring to Christ? Because here's what we do a lot of times is we, we look at our behavior. Is, is this behavior honoring to Christ? But if we never get down to the root, what's inside, and why, why does that bubble up every time that person does that? Why is it that I feel this coming up in me every time? We've got to go to the root and not just the fruit. And so he's saying here, take it captive. Take those thoughts captive and say, is this honoring to Christ? Will this help me to obey Christ? And then verse 6 is this kind of a strange statement, but being ready to punish every disobedience. Being willing to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put that to death. That thought was not honoring to Christ. I'm not going to let it leave my mouth. And I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm going to put that to bed. I'm going to put that to death. Ready to punish that, which would lead us into disobedience. Ready to, 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 to avenge that or to make that right. And so change our thinking. Our battles, guys, are going to be won right here. Right here. It's, 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 it's what the, the Bible says, out of the heart that we speak. It's out of that, that heart, that mind, that, that we behave and do what we do. And so we've got to, we've got to do that. And, and the truth is this. In order to accomplish that, many times we need others around us who will remind us of the gospel, who will challenge our thinking our responses, our words, our behavior, who will lovingly ask us, hey, is, is that really honoring to Christ? We need those, those outside eyes. Sometimes we would prefer just to operate in the darkness. We would just prefer to, to have it our way, to go a low-key under the radar and, and just to, 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 to stick the knife in the back, but, but don't leave any fingerprints. But that doesn't make us more like Jesus. And that doesn't prepare us for the battles that we are going to encounter in the spiritual realm. So we need outside eyes. We need a, a loving rebuke. And we need people who will speak encouraging truth to us. So we need one another to do that. Look with me in Colossians chapter 3. It's a big passage, but it's a powerful passage that reminds us of, of what we are called to do and how we are called to prepare our minds. Colossians chapter 3, really, the, man, almost the whole chapter of, of chapter 3, but, but I want to focus in on verses 5 and following right now. Here's what he says. If we're going to prepare our minds for action, here's what we do. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death that flesh, that earthliness, that old man that's living inside of you. And now watch this. This is, this is important. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, that's the root. And then here's the fruit. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
So here's what he's saying. You can treat the root or you can treat the fruit. Most of us attack the fruit. I shouldn't have said that. I need to, I need to control my tongue. No, you need to change your heart. That's the difference. Well, I need, I need to watch my, 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 uh, my, my words. No, you need to change your heart. We can attack the fruit all day long and never get to the point. We just keep making new fruit. And it's not godly fruit. And it's not going to be godly fruit until the root changes. And so here, here's what Paul's going to say is let's attack the root and not just the fruit. So put to death what's earthly in you. Put to death the root. This old man that's living in you that keeps popping these things out. Let's put that to death. And by the way, here's the fruit of that old man is, is all these things that he lists. So he says, attack the root and not just the fruit. Put to death what's earthly in you. If we can't attack the root, then we're going we're gonna to constantly just be putting out fires in our life. But if we can allow God to come and to, to transplant a new man, which is what the new birth is, it's, it's putting the old man to death so that a new man can live. If we can do that, then we can accomplish great things in the kingdom of God. But we've got to put that to death. Let me jump to, to Galatians chapter 5. Diane, I don't know if that's in order or not, but Galatians chapter 5, um, he's, he's going to speak to us here about, um, about what this means to, to put this to death. He says, uh, was it verse 3? Uh, no, verse 16 and 17, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm in the wrong book here. Hang on, i got the wrong marker. i got too many things to go to today. Galatians, here we go, Galatians 5. Verses 16 and 17. We talked about putting it to death. Look what he says here. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They wage war against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There is a battle that's going on inside of us between our flesh and and the Spirit of God that lives within us. And, and these two things are opposed to one another. They are enemies of one another. And it's a, it's a battle for your being. It's a battle for the very core of who you are. And if all you do is try to correct the outside without allowing God to address the inside, all you do is focus on the fruit and not the root, you will be focused on that the rest of your life. And you'll, you'll not win those battles. And then he says in verse... 24, same chapter, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the mark of a believer, is that those who, who belong to Christ have put to death the root, the old man. Are, he's, he's put to death, he's dead, he's buried. And so they've put to death the flesh, that's the root. With its passions and desires, that's the fruit. You kill the, the root, you eliminate the fruit. So this is what Paul's trying to say. Let's go back now to that passage in, in Colossians. I mean, back in, uh, hang on, hang on, one other verse. Galatians 2.20, y'all know this verse, but, but let's look at it real quick. Talking about being crucified with Christ. Paul says this, I, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what's he saying? 
That old Paul, that old Saul, has been put to death. And the guy that you see living right now is actually Christ living in me. And the life that I now live, the life that he gave me, that I'm living in this flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God. How can you do that? How can you trust him? How can you put all your hope in Jesus Christ? Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. Paul says, I've crucified myself. I've been crucified with Christ. And here's the neat thing is that those who are crucified with Christ are raised with Christ. Those who put the old man to death have a new man emerge. But guys, listen, we we won't ever see this new man emerge until the old man is put to death. We we can't serve two masters. And so don't be fooled by thinking that, that, that you can live for Christ while keeping the old man propped up. You can't do that. Uh, Before we can ever live for Christ, there's a fundamental transformation that has to take place in our life. And that is the old man has to die in order for this new man to fully emerge. Before we can live for Christ, we've got to die to ourselves. Stop living for ourselves. Stop being my own master. Scripture says we can't serve two masters. You can't be the boss of your life and make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's not possible. My flesh, this old nature, and God's spirit are at war. And they cannot exist as co-leaders of my life. So I've got to decide who's going to call the shots. Who's going to be the one that calls the shots in my life? So he says now, let's go back to to Colossians chapter 3. Again, an incredible passage here in Colossians 3. It says, put to death... What is earthly? That's the root. Put the root to death. And then the fruit's going to take care of itself. Uh, And he says, on on account of these, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, these these things that he's just described, these fleshly behaviors, in these you too once walked. That was your old life, he's saying. And when you were living in them. But now, there's a difference. There's a transformation. Jesus has come to live in your life. And if he lives in your life, there ought to be different fruit. There ought to be a different root and a different fruit system. But now he says you've got to put them all away, all of those old things. And, and literally in the Greek, that's the word to renounce. To, 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 to renounce, to say, I renounce my allegiance to those things. I no longer pursue those things. I'm no longer loyal to those things. Those are, those are my past. They're not my present. You renounce the old ways. You put them all away. And there's some more fruit. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that or sense that, you have put off the old self. There's the root. You put off the the old self. You, You put to death the root with its practices, which is the fruit. And then he says, and have put on, you've put on the new self. There's a new root, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. There's the new fruit. Only when Jesus takes root... Can he produce the new fruit? We could look at so many scriptures, that, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit and the, and the, and the works of, of the flesh. And it's all about the root and the fruit, the root and the fruit. And where your root is, there your fruit's going to be. And, and your fruit is just a reflection of your root. So if you and I look at our lives and, and, and there's stuff that we keep struggling with, it's because it's a root problem. It's a Jesus problem in us. 
Maybe that old man has not fully been put to death. And here's the thing. We put the old man to death. You know what Satan does? He tries to start CPR. Amen? How many of you have seen that happen? You, you try to put him to death and Satan's on top of him doing CPR. Just trying to keep him alive. And you're going, let him die. And Satan's like, not a chance. And even when Satan realizes that he can't keep him alive, he wants to keep his memory alive. He does that for two reasons. He, or two different ways. He'll keep the memory of the old man alive by using shame and guilt to remind you of everything you used to do and how horrible you used to be. And to accuse you and to, to, to try to beat you down and tell you that you're just not worthy to be a believer. And you call yourself a Christian, but I saw what you did way back then and I know and I haven't forgotten. And he keeps that memory alive to shame you and to guilt you and to lock you in his prison that Jesus came to set you free from. The other thing that he does to keep the memory alive is to try to remind you of how much fun you had before you came to Jesus. Remember the good old days? I hear Christians talking about that. I remember the good old days, man. I'm thinking the good old days ought to be now. This is life. But when we, when we get it backwards, we, we, we listen to those lies and we think that was the good old life. What's so good about being bent over a toilet, hugging the throne? What's good about that? What's so good about all the destruction that was left in our wake, in our relationships, and, and in our lives before we came to know Jesus Christ? You, you tell me one thing that sin offered you that Jesus didn't surpass. But Satan will try to remind you, he'll try to blind you and convince you that those were the good old days. He's saying you used to walk in those things when you were living in them. But now I want you to put them away. And I want you to put off the old self. Listen to all these put to death, put it away, renounce it, take it off. And then I want you to put on, verse 10, put on the new self. There's that new root. Being born of the Spirit, okay? Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, the divine knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, let me ask you this. Who created the new self? God did. In order to make you, to remake you in his image. He says here, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. In other words, he's the only one that could rebirth you. You didn't get rebirthed because you were slave or because you were free, because you were a Jew or a Gentile. You got rebirthed because you were in Christ. So put on this new self. And then he says, I want you to put on then, verse 12, uh, as God's chosen ones. We'll see that term again later in 1 Peter. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want you to put on compassionate hearts. Here's the fruit. You got the root. Now here's the fruit that will follow. Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You're going to be able to bear with one another. And if, if, if one has a complaint against another, they're going to forgive each other. As the Lord's forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, you're going to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the peace of Christ will rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. You'll be thankful, he says, and you'll let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It'll teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about this rejoicing in the truth that's there. 
And you have thankfulness in your hearts to God. Contentment in your heart. And whatever you do in word or do, you'll do it in the name of the Lord Jesus for His glory, giving thanks to God the Father. Why? Because God's the one that made it possible. And He's also the one that made it pleasing. Look what Paul's saying. When the root changes, the fruit changes. In, in this short passage, there's so many things that, that Paul says. Let me just kind of bullet point them real quick, okay? He says, number one, crucify the flesh. How? By separating yourself from your sin and, and by shedding your past behavior. Kill the root and watch the fruit go away. And then he says, I want you to clothe yourself with Christ. Verse 10, he says that, that, that his image will emerge. Verse 12, his character will become evident. Verse 13, his forgiveness will be offered. Verse 14, his love will be extended. Verse 15, his peace will rule. Verse 16, his word will be influencing you. Verse 16, his thanks will be overflowing. And verse 17, his devotion will be inspiring. That's what happens when the root changes. And when Paul or Peter says back there in 1 Peter, I want you to prepare your mind, this is what he's talking about. Because if your, if your mind or your heart doesn't change, none of the rest of that stuff's going to change for long. We've got to prepare our minds, our, our hearts, for what God wants to do in us and, and through us. We've got to prepare ourselves. And so in order to set our hope... We've got to prepare our minds back in 1 Peter. And then he says, I want you to be sober-minded. A person that's under the influence of alcohol is sluggish. Their, their vision is blurred. Their response time is slowed down. Their judgment is impaired. He's saying, I don't want you to be so intoxicated with this world that you're sluggish when God speaks. That your vision is impaired to where you don't see clearly what God's wanting you to do. I don't want you to be so intoxicated by the things of this world that you miss what God's putting right before you. I want you to have, be sober-minded, to be clear-thinking, to, to literally to be unimpeded. He's going to use this term again. Later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where he reminds us that we have an adversary, the devil. Be sober-minded, be alert, he says. You have an enemy, the devil, who roars around like a, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So I want you to prepare yourself for action. I want you to be unimpeded, to be alert, to be aware, to be unintoxicated with these worldly things and when you do that you'll be able to set your hope your hope we'll talk about this next week but 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 peter and paul are going to 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 show us a distinction between faith and and hope faith is 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 a it's it's a trust right now for what god's already done what god's already said hope is a future faith in what God has promised. Here he's saying, I want you to prepare your minds for action. How do you do that? You've got to put the old man to death. You've you got to start saying, why do I respond that way? What is it in my heart? What is it in my old DNA that makes me do that when I know that's not pleasing to God? 
And let's start dealing with the heart issues and not just the behavioral issues. Let's deal with the root and not just the fruit. So, gird it up, saddle up, cinch it up, get ready to ride, get ready for the battle, get ready for what's coming ahead. Be sober minded. If you're going to ride, you got to be you got to be clear, you got to be unimpeded. In Colossians 3, where we just read the first four verses of that chapter, we'll look at this again next week, but let me just throw it out there at you. Verses, chapter 3, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, if then, if it's true that you've been raised with Christ. Now, think about this. In order to be raised or resurrected with Christ, what's got to happen first? What's got to happen before a person can be resurrected? They got to die. So that's an assumption here. If you've been raised with Christ, that means you've died with Christ, okay? So if you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, then I want you to seek those things that are above. What do we spend most of our time seeking after? Is it the things above or is it the stuff of this world? What is it that gets us out of bed in the morning? Is it that I want to serve the Lord again today? Or is it that I want to serve myself and my family again today? He says, seek those things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Here's part of that preparation. Set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. These are active verbs. Set and seek. It's intentional acts, not just automatic things that flow. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. Look at this. You're going to seek that which is hidden. Seek the things that are above. Why? Because your life is hidden above. We're seeking the life that God has intended for us. We died, and now our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, don't rush past that. Christ is your life. Is that true of you? Can, Can you honestly before God say Jesus is my everything he's my life if it weren't for him I I would be dead most of us would say that but but do we say it's it's because of him and for him that I get up every day that's why I live he is my life so he's telling us to seek the things above not the stuff of this earth because we were, we, we, we've died and our life is now hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, when he appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. There's that hope in the second coming of Christ that Peter mentions in verse 13. To set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when, when Christ is revealed. The grace that will be given to you when Christ is revealed. 
So this morning, I want us to think about where we're at, not just our behavior, but our, but our hearts. Are they dead to the old man and, and, and emerging this image of Christ in the new? Do we do what we do because we've been made new? Or are we still out there looking at the fruit, trying to figure out how to change apples to oranges and lemons to grapefruits? The fruit's not going to change until the root changes. And so really what Peter's calling us to do here is to make sure that our hearts are right. He says, prepare your minds. Be sober-minded, but that happens through a a, a change of heart because out of our heart, everything else flows. So we've got to prepare our minds for action. These that are reading Peter's letter are about to enter into some of the most difficult persecutions of their life, and he wants them to be ready, to be prepared, to be sober But even as they rush into battle, he wants their eyes upon the grace that will be revealed when Christ returns. You see, not focused upon death, not focused upon how do I beat death, but but the focus is upon what Jesus has already done to death. And when I'm not afraid to die, then I'm finally ready to live and that's what Peter's asking his people to do don't you fear death Nero may take your life but if you stop fearing death the moment you stop fearing death then you're finally ready to live and that's what we're called to do let's pray together